0: Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, apologist Michelle Tepper speaks on the game-changing person of Jesus, his teachings and attitudes towards women, and how we can be confident in the accuracy of the Bible.
1: So Michelle, how do we know what Jesus said and did?
0: Well, the best way to find out what he said and did are from his biographies, which are in the New Testament, the four Gospels. Often we think about the Bible and we go, oh, well, that's not reliable, and it's just this religious book put together. But it's really helpful to remember there's lots of different parts of the Bible, and they have different uses. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are biographies of Jesus' life. And just like any historical figure, the way we find out who someone is, the best way when they aren't walking and living among us and is to go into the historical research that we have about him.
1: How do we know that they're accurate? Because there's all sorts of questions about older, uh, you know, writings from antiquity. How can we be sure about what was said in those?
0: Yeah, well there's so much evidence that not only the Gospels, but the Bible that we have and read today as modern Christians is exactly the same Bible that um, new Christians, the early church, and even Jewish people were reading um, years and years and years ago. Obviously it was called different things for different people. We have the Torah, we have the Old Testament, before Jesus came, the New Testament, were biographies that were written, and then the letters to the churches, the epistles. The way we are sure is there's just a wealth of evidence. There's first literary historic evidence. There's more evidence that the writings that we have in the New Testament today, so the biographies, the fragments that we have of the church letters, are more historically verifiable and accurate than any other works that we just assume are historical, like Plato, like the Iliad, like the Odyssey, like Caesar's writing. There's just so much more fragment evidence, we call it. So we use something called literary criticism, where we look at all of the different fragments that we have that span as close as sometimes 25 to only 15 years from the stories that are told of Jesus' life in the New Testament, we have over 25,000 of these literary fragments in Greek, in Latin, and in other ancient languages. And rather than that being a problem, oh, we have all these copies, hasn't it been changed? Look at all the different versions we have. That means that with absolutely academic accuracy, we can, and it has been done over and over and over again, go back and piece together the entire historical evidence that we have of Jesus' life and the New Testament. see when it was written, which scribes wrote them, and if there are any disputable parts where someone goes, well that wasn't in the earliest edition, we go back to where the change happened and we can find it and locate it and go, oh this is where it happened, and then correct it to make sure that heresy or changes don't happen. So it's completely accurate. There's actually no historians today, tenured historians, that will stand up and say that the facts that we have about Jesus' life birth and death, are not historically true. It,
1: it, there's Because there, there is a bit of a, a feeling out there, even among some, uh, I guess, intellectual commentators, if I can use that term, that says, well, no, we're not absolutely sure that Jesus was a historical figure. You would suggest that history shows that's not true.
0: History shows that's absolutely not true. Now, what we take from what I believe is Absolutely watertight evidence that he was a historical figure. What assumptions we then make? Was he the son of God? Did he do what he said he did? Did um, his followers change what he said later on? That is going to be open to dispute by different people and different academics. And as I hope any person that would look into it would decide for themselves. But the facts about where he was born, the prophecies leading up to his birth, the life that he lived, how he treated people, what he taught, the Trial that he was put on before his death, the circumstances surrounding his death, and also the fact that three days later nobody could find his body, those historical facts are not disputed about. What we draw from those and the conclusions we make are up for discussion because that's about belief, that's less about history.
1: There's a lot of kind of both historical figures and religious figures, almost Messiah figures like Jesus is. How is Jesus different from others? of his era or even later eras?
0: Yeah, you know why I love this question so much when people ask me is because um, all of the other religious leaders I believe in history pointed to paths of change, new ways of acting, behavior modification, or steps to God or to peace or to happiness. If you follow me you might get this. If you follow me I'll point you to God. Jesus didn't have to point to anyone else or anything else. He came and he said, you're looking for God, you found Him. You're not looking for anything outside of me. Everything you need, Everything you've been hoping for, every dream that you've ever had for acceptance, for salvation, for hope, for life, is found in me. So I guess an easy way of putting it is other Jesus figures or Messiah type of figures pointed to something else. Jesus came and every step of the way said, if you're seeing me, you're seeing the Father. Everything you need is right here in me.
1: What what did Jesus leave when he left earth? Because in some ways he changed the world, but then he didn't, when he left, there wasn't much, was there? Right. What did he leave?
0: You know, I believe he left a new kingdom. It didn't look the way even his followers had hoped that it would look. Many left him, even his betrayers ran away because they expected Jesus' new kingdom and the anointed Messiah to come and maybe bring war or maybe change political things. But he brought a new unseen kingdom that wasn't just about changing a government strategy or a new way of live, a kingdom that said, I'm the king you've always hoped for, and an invitation, not into a new set of laws, but into the royal family of God, an invitation that goes, yeah, this kingdom operates under different rules, different regulations, different laws, different standards that you have ever done. But I'm not asking you to sign up to one new kingdom or one new civilization. I'm asking you to join relationship with the king himself. You not only get a new kingdom, but you get an invitation in as children of the king. You're the royals now. And that did change everything because everyone else kept trying to create new systems or kept trying to have new victories. And Jesus came. And though much of it wasn't seen in the physical or the material or even in laws that people expected, he gave an invitation into a relationship. And as with everything in life, the truest and the most real relationships are the only true thing that changed the world.
1: Was there there anything that was, what was the most important thing that Jesus did? What was the most kind, kind of game-changing thing that Jesus did, do you think?
0: To me, uh, his game-changing aspect is his presence. Emmanuel, God with us. There's a lot of leaders, there's a lot of um, laws, there's a lot of new ways of thinking that tell you things to do, or give you recipes for success, or um, just different things like that. Jesus said, I'm here, I'm God, and I'm gonna walk with you. You're sad, you're suffering, I'm gonna cry alongside of you. You're hungry and thirsty for forgiveness, for justice, for peace. Just by being near me, I will give it to you. So I believe the biggest game change that Jesus brought and continues to bring today is his presence. He showed that God was truly real in history and brought God's presence, physical presence into history. He left and he said, my peace I leave with you. You're not going to be alone. It's going to be sad. It's going to be hard. But I'm sending you a comforter. I'm leaving with you still my presence. Today, as we talk about the imprint that Jesus has left, yes, we have systems and societies built around what he taught. But what he still leaves with us today is, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have the power of the living, merciful, just God who loves the world, who hasn't just left us alone to go now get on with it follow me. He does say, follow me, but he goes, guess what? I'm right with you. You can look at me, you can walk with me, you can talk to me, and that changes everything.
1: In that, You mentioned forgiveness. What, what did Jesus have to say about forgiveness?
0: The two things that always jump out to me is the woman who washed his feet. He said, those who have been forgiven much love much, which I think speaks a lot about our heart. I think those of us that struggle with forgiveness are never quite sure where we stand with God, and never quite sure where we stand with other people. But also, he taught us how to pray. He said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiveness was central to all that Jesus taught because forgiveness is about sacrifice. Forgiveness is about right standing and right relationship. Forgiveness is about reconciliation. And really, Jesus wasn't setting up a religion. He was showing us how to right our relationship with God.
1: Well, Did Jesus say th- things about forgiveness that were different from other leaders either then or now?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at just the time period that he lived in, forgiveness was always conditional even amongst, and especially amongst the religious leaders of the day, it was an exacting, demanding, conditional forgiveness. I will forgive you if you have suffered enough. I will forgive you if you pay back enough. I will forgive you if under the exacting of the law or um, the society of the day or religious ceremony, you have fulfilled all of the ticks to show that you will pay back what you owe me. And Jesus brought a complete new way going, forgive your brother 70 times seven, keep doing it. That shocked everybody. Um, And then today, I believe forgiveness has gotten cheap. I think when there's a wrong in society today, we focus more on the shame of the person who's been caught in the awkwardness of, I'm really sorry, and how we feel because we've been caught out or, or we've done something wrong, and less on securing right relationship with the person that we have wronged. And Jesus created a new way, not one that was completely exacting and demanding and conditional based on performance, and not one that brushed it aside and gave cheap forgiveness and said, oh, it doesn't really matter, because that's not true. Forgiveness is costly because forgiveness is sacrifice. Even if you say to someone, it doesn't matter, it's costly to you because you are absorbing either the awkwardness of a rude statement or if someone's wrecked your car, you're gonna absorb. Even if you go, oh, that's fine, I forgive you. You absorb the cost. Relationships that mean something that go the distance, marriages, friendships, parenting that works in society is so costly because again and again and again you say, I am not willing to sacrifice relationship with you, so I will sacrifice myself to sustain our relationship. And that model for life and relationship and forgiveness only came at the cross.
1: Tell me about the cross. I mean, what did the cross do? If you were to explain to somebody, so what was the cross about, death and resurrection, and and how it relates to forgiveness, what would you say?
0: I would say the cross is the greatest demonstration and evidence that we have that um, the whole... Salvation story is about love, but love that um, is different than just the feelings and temporary um, individualized understanding I bet we generally have. That love is the point of the salvation story, and that love is a costly love. That in order to let love that is not individual focused, um, other focus survive and sustain, we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves for love to remain alive. And so the cross is the cost of eternal love, being able to not only survive but live victoriously. As I said just a little bit ago, if it makes sense here on Earth, that um, the relationships that have meant the most to us in life usually have been characterized by the greatest sacrifices. Teachers that we've learned so much, they've been patient and not given up on us when we can't get that math formula again and again. Parents and children um, that have wonderful relationships, no matter what, you know, brainless moments sometimes we or children or your children go through survive because the parents again and again go, "I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I can take." that cost on. The cross is the ultimate eternal cost of forgiveness. If we can understand it in our relationships here on earth, in a sense, why can't we understand it with God? Jesus, the only righteous one who actually never offended anybody else in a way where he had to repay because he had hurt it, who never violated love in any step of his life, took the ultimate violation of all of our violations of hurt and relationship, and took it upon Himself at the cross.
1: If, if there were those who were listening to say, well, I don't think I really need forgiveness, mm. how, would you, how would you respond?
0: For a person that says that they don't need forgiveness, I would just ask them how their relationships are doing. I really stand by the fact that um, true love and relationship cannot be self-focused. Maybe they're not married. Maybe this is just coming from a married's point of view There's always something there's always a way you can put yourself in the other person's shoes and say you know what I Could have done that differently Maybe that person hasn't called me out or I can't see where I might have harmed or taken advantage or or lived selfishly But I could always be thinking of the other person and so for a person that says I don't need forgiveness I would humbly just say the people that you're in close relationship with, do they feel exactly the same thing? And is there any way that you can take on a lens of living in life where it's not thinking about well there's nothing I've ever done wrong, but beginning to think, where can I be living for other people? Where can I be loving other people well when they're not loving me?
1: Uh, in Jesus' time, what was your understanding was kind of like the life of a woman in Jesus' time in that Greco-Roman world?
0: Well, I tell you what, I, I, I'm pretty happy I didn't live in that time, if I'm really honest. It, it was really different from um, what we know now, at least in our Western world. So, for instance, Aristotle, he spoke that the building blocks of community was friendship and said that we need thriving friendships where um, equals meet and exchange trust and intellectual prowess and, and, and really build each other up. But then going on to write about a relationship between a husband and a wife, he said the relationship between a husband and a wife should be as a ruler and the ruled. So for someone saying that community, this is the you know Greek thought, is built on good relationship but then saying relationships between men and women are not friendships, it's the ruler and the ruled, that makes you go, ooh, that probably meant that women didn't have it quite that easy. Also, it was common practice and expected that a, women's, a woman's realm was specifically in the home, and not hearing that as we might hear that today, um, not as in I'm you know taking care of um, anything from my home and I love doing that and I thrive in that and that what's bringing me alive, meaning secluded the way that um, uh, Greco-Roman women were, were, were kept is kind of shocking sometimes. Basically a show of how much not only force but wealth and honor that you had in the society would be how many wives or women that you had and how secluded you kept them, how locked down, how kind of the fortress that you built, how amazing it was, how luxurious it was, almost that you could at your beck and call have your wives on demand, but nobody else got to see them because they were exclusively yours. So basically you were excluded from society, you were not allowed to own property, you were not allowed to do any economic transactions without a male guardian. I know in the Jewish world, a woman's testimony was not even valid in the court of law. So she couldn't stick up for herself or be a witness to anything. Um, Young girls were not permitted to be educated, and they were not permitted to speak in public. So a woman's role was pretty background, pretty subservient, and um, not really viewed as someone who could be a leader someone who could um, have a public voice and someone who could actually have their own rights in and of themselves.
1: So the the person of Jesus in history into that world, how did he change the way he treated woman or women or the way women were treated around him?
0: Uh, well, he really changed everything. He just flipped everything on its head. He, was, he, he, he broke every box and I, that is really what got him killed. The religious leaders didn't like that they expected God to come a certain way. And Jesus looked so differently, so they killed him because they couldn't just conceive of what that looked like, but Jesus, always went after the lost and the last and the least. He had women disciples, though people don't usually realize that. All you got to do is read through the Bible and look at Susanna, look at um, different people that he mentions that not only followed him around with his other disciples, but actually funded his ministry. That was unheard of. That was shocking. That would have been shameful in a time when women couldn't have economic transactions, couldn't be seen as social or political or financial leaders. And yet he had women that not only followed him enough, but put their own personal finances into backing his ministry. I mean, Mary sitting at his feet Often we uh, dismiss or gloss over that story where he talks to the two sisters, Mary and Martha. And often, I've even heard it or taught it probably in the past as, you know, Martha was too busy doing chores and Mary spent time with Jesus, so that was great. We need to all remember to spend more time with Jesus. That's a valid interpretation of it. But we move and lose the fact that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. The only people that got to sit at a rabbi's feet at that time, because he was a rabbi, were theologians, like students of theologians. So basically, Mary was in seminary, is what the Bible is telling us. So there's women that are supporting Jesus' ministry. There's women that are not only allowed to learn, but allowed to study theology. Many people think that the whole um, start of the Christmas story, if you will, or the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke, is Mary's testimony. So Luke giving voice to the mother of Jesus, writing down what we have as the building blocks of our theology and historical verification of Jesus' life. Jesus turned everything on its head. He not only loved women, but he gave them voice. He gave them space. He educated them. Um, Dorothy Sayers has probably the most famous quote and remarks on it. She um, wrote um, theology. She wrote um Uh, historical um, and uh, novels of fiction, and she was in the Inklings, the group with C.S. Lewis. So a woman herself that was well-educated, but mostly among men. So I think she really personally felt the weight of how Jesus was a game changer, as you say, with women. And her famous quote says, "Um, women had never known a man like Jesus, nor would there ever be one, Um, one who took their questions and their arguments seriously, one who never mapped out their sphere for for them, one that never urged them to be more feminine, nor jeered at them for being female. In both his actions and his ministry, he treated women as equally important to men for salvation. And that's beautiful. I love the way she put that because I think Christians, the church, and even society, even if you remove it for faith, over the years, we swing in two pendulums. We either say, you know, be more like a man, and then you'll be more accepted, and that's how you become a CA- CEO, or that's how you become a leader. Put aside all of you know your girliness and, and learn to man up. And then we swing in the other direction and go, no, embrace your femininity, you know, just if you would not be so, la- I got that growing up. You know, Michelle, you know, a lot of men would like you better if you just weren't so forceful, you know, Michelle, I remember even in, in high school, if you just smiled a little bit more, I didn't talk so maybe the boys would like you, you know? And I love Jesus on both fronts. Never said, you have to do this to be a woman. What he said to men and women alike was, the only thing you need in life is me. And if you come to me and walk with me, I'll show you what your role is. I'll give you a calling that will surpass everything. I'll give you value and identity, and not just for you, one that fills you up so much that whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, as Paul went on to write, you'll know who you are and you can empower other people to be exactly who they are without diminishing them or diminishing yourself in the process.
1: As the early church follows Jesus' example and, and Jesus' teaching around the issue of women, how did that unfold itself in the early church?
0: Yeah. Well, you know what, in the early church especially, and I think it's good that we're talking about this, women had more of a role and more freedom than they had ever previously had before, um, definitely in in Jewish backgrounds. So even Paul, what he writes about women was amazing for the early church. So as we already mentioned, women weren't allowed to speak in public. They weren't allowed to be educated. They weren't really all- allowed out of their houses. Paul talks about women being equally important because they're made from the creation order and the image of God. He calls, yes, wives to submit to their husbands, but then says, husbands, submit to Christ. So saying, you have to submit the way you're treating your wives, not as property, not as slaves, but as women made in the image of God, humans made in the image of God, deserving of every single right that you have. And he called husbands to love their wives the way Christ sacrificially and humbly loved the church. Now, Jesus had just walked the earth and died to save his church. Paul is calling husbands to take their wives out of their cloisters, allow them to learn, let them prophesy in public, let them speak out in the churches. I mean, Paul, even just welcoming them into the worship um, ceremonies and structures and talking about the way men and women should be dressed close to each other, a lot of times with our now modern view, we look at that and misunderstand it. The facts that he's giving rules and regulations for right worship, for men and women is already history-making because men and women weren't allowed to be next to each other in churches. The fact that Paul writes about um, women of standing in the early church, that in Acts, women that were leaders in their community, leaders in economy, are not only um, converted and noted as the first converts, but they then become the movers and shakers that get the gospel of Jesus Christ into their communities, into their realms of government, that's unheard of as well. So not only are they recognized, they're free to learn, they're able to speak in public, they're able to come to church services. They're actually being given positions of great esteem. Paul going, we can't reach our communities, we can't reach our governments, we can't reach the men and women of society without you. I mean, it was changing everything. Uh,
1: so Michelle, for you as a woman today, because there's some people that kind of go, eh, Christian church is sort of down on women almost, yeah. um, even misogynist almost. Yeah. So what is what is it for you to follow Jesus and be active as a leader within the church?
0: Yeah. Well, I would say it's because of following Jesus and because of how he clearly treated women that I um, not only have my confidence, um, but real um, passion for following Jesus in both the private and the public sphere. Um, I think that too often um, it's not just about being male or female. We think certain things about the way we are um, cut us off or keep us out from life, keep us out from leading, keep us out from relationship. I mean, that's the lie of the centuries. I'm not pretty enough, nobody will love me. I'm not educated enough, I can't get that job. You know, I, I came from a bad socioeconomic background and so I'll never break out and I'm gonna repeat the same mistakes. Jesus came to change that, not just because um, of the way he treated women, but the way he equally went out of the way to um, say nobody is off limits to the good news of the gospel. Nobody is off limits to his love. So really, as a woman today um, in life and in the church, it's not important for me to stand up and fight for women's rights because, um, in a sense, Jesus did that for me already. I will fight for anybody and any right and any cause if it's against the heart of the gospel, which the heart of the gospel is equal love, equal forgiveness, equal opportunity for everyone to come look. The historical accuracy of Jesus, face to face on the pages, and then eye to eye, I believe, through his living presence today, and go, is this valid for me? So. Today, I welcome the opportunity to share about my faith, whether it is to the man or the woman next door, or a government leader that I'm speaking to, or from the front of a church, or the back of a church, basically any opportunity I have to invite people to come to know this man that treated not only women, but everybody he came in contact with better and different than they could ever hope to imagine. I would like to be. A beacon of that welcome and that relationship wherever I go. So I would say, though, I'm not making light of the fact that many people throughout church history and over the years, for different reasons, at the hands of, I, I would believe, well intentioned people, have been told, you're not allowed to get close to God. But I would say, on that front, go back to the biographies, go back to what Jesus Himself said, go back to the Bible itself and see if you don't get that unconditional, not only welcome, but push going, I'm for you. I believe in you. I'm empowering you. Go with my power, with my grace, with this message of love and fill the earth with the good news.
1: So Michelle, for you, how is Jesus the game changer?
0: Jesus is a game changer because he's with me. Jesus is a game changer because his presence never leaves us or forsakes us. That's what changed history because He actually physically came with His presence, Um, but He's the game changer in all of life because whenever we think that we can't forgive anymore, we're reminded of how He forgave us and filled with His power and grace. Whenever we think that we're suffering too much, We can be reminded um, of the way that He suffered, but then also press in here and now to the fact that He's saying, you can cry out to me. It's okay to be in pain. It's okay to have questions. I'm the God who invites you in to the conversations about these things. Um, Jesus is the one that changes everything because He's always with me, and I never have to be alone and when society changes, because it will, and when any new person gets a new interpretation of a new law or a new trend that might hurt me or hurt someone else or say no or cut people out, I'm with Jesus and he's there going, I'm for you. My message hasn't changed, my power doesn't change, my grace for you doesn't change, and we can face this together. And really, as long as we are with him, Everything will be changed, whether it is personally, whether it's in our communities, or whether it's in government. Just walking with Him is the key to change. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video, and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.